Hello, welcome to Discovering Jazz. My name's Larry Sademan here in Victoria, BC. In this program, we all discover jazz old and new together. We'll listen to a wide variety of jazz styles and I'll present different topics, giving ideas as to what we can listen for to enhance our experience. Thanks to Peterborough Independent Podcasters for hosting this podcast. For the next 60 minutes, Discovering Jazz. Last week... I made an effort to find some specific jazz pianists who I'd be able to identify as soon as I heard them and didn't have much luck. I may have found a couple, but even then, because so many people are influenced and even imitate the styles of other great pianists, one, one can never be sure. But maybe I'm putting the cart before the horse. What I need to do is get more clarity about the different piano styles and their history. So that's what I'll do this week. The earliest sort of jazz piano that we know about was ragtime. The pianist was like a one-man band playing in 2-4 time, the rhythm of marches, but with syncopation, meaning that the pianist would hit right-hand notes just before the beat, while the left hand would sustain a 1-2-1-2 one, two, one, two beat. The most famous of the lot was Scott Joplin. His 1899 composition of the Maple Leaf Rag brought him fame and some wealth, pretty much unprecedented for a black man in the United States. Let's hear a version of it by Joshua Rifkin, who had a hand in reviving ragtime in the late 1960s and early 70s. Joshua Rifkin, 
Scott Joplin's Maple Leaf Rag, written in 1899. Just to keep things honest here, I should let you know that a lot of the organization and many of the details of the material in today's program has come from a great book from 1983 called The Great Jazz Pianists, Speaking of Their Lives and Music by Len Lyons. Coming into the 20th century, piano was not an instrument used in bands. It was too big, and there were no such thing as electric pianos, so it was mostly a one-person instrument. Guitars and banjos were more, more often used instead in brass bands. The rags were all precisely written out, so there wasn't really room for improvisation but the roots of jazz were in traditional African music that was very spontaneous. One man, credited for putting this together with his own knowledge of opera and European classical piano music, was Jelly Roll Morton. I have a whole episode dedicated to Morton's compositions, episode 116, but I won't let that stop me from playing more by Jelly Roll Morton though he was from New York, New Orleans and played lots of piano in the mansions of Storyville, imitating the sound of the big brass bands on his single instrument. It was when he went to Chicago in the mid-1920s that he formed his own band built around his piano, the Red Hot Peppers. While he had meticulous arrangements, he did encourage improvisation. From 1926, here is Jelly Roll Morton and the Red Hot Peppers with Morton's composition, Grandpa's Spells. Well, with those primitive recording techniques, the piano was so often drowned out by the brass and woodwind instruments, as you can certainly hear in that uh, that old recording. The struts, 
Stomps and Blues, played by Jilly Roe Morton, made way for something called stride piano. Last week, I played one of the greats of stride piano, Fats Waller. The father of stride piano, who was Fats Waller's tutor, was James P. Johnson. Stride was quite different from ragtime, as it would leap from a note or two notes to a chord in the middle range, all done with the left hand, as a right hand would play syncopated melodies or improvisations. The music was usually in 4-4 time. The pianist used fuller harmonies and chromatic chord progressions, meaning they went up or down in semitones, and it all required great technique. And James B. Johnson had that. Here is Carolina Shout from 1921. Stride piano died out during the swing era, but it's had a gradual comeback, starting with Thelonious Monk and even free jazz pianist Cecil Taylor used it. Here is a Toronto pianist, Ron Davis, and a 2002 album called Solo Duo Trio. The first track, his version of Bronislav Capers' All God's Children, starts out bebop, bebop style, with a walking, well, I'd say running bass, and just after the one-minute mark goes into full stride. Let's listen to it.
Ron Davis from Toronto. When somebody plays stride, they are usually considered old-fashioned. But when they mix it with other styles, then they're progressive. My mother mostly played stride. I never realized how good she was until recently, when I kind of rediscovered it in my own playing. Today on Discovering Jazz, I'm putting together sort of an historical perspective on jazz piano styles. Let's move on to the swing era, and we'll start with Earl Father Hines. I especially want to give him a listen and play something old and something from the tail end of his career. That's because a man from whom I took a few online piano lessons, Ron Drotos, told me that my own style sounded like it was modeled on Earl Hines, primarily his playing in the 1960s. According to Len Lyons, Earl Hines expanded the piano's capabilities on every front, rhythmic, harmonic, and melodic. He would vary that steady left-hand rhythm by adding broken rhythms, implied rhythms, sections where he would play double time, and all sorts of tempo and meter changes. The 4-4 stride would, would be varied through displaced accents. It would be like he lost the chord changes of the rhythm, only to bring it back perfectly at the end of the phrase or the chorus. He also used chromatic half-step progressions, which led the way to the reharmonizations that Art Tatum used later. He played a lot with Louis Armstrong. You can hear a lot of Hines' distinct style on their recording of Weatherbird from 1928. Here it is. Hines and Louis Armstrong from 1928. Now let's have some later Earl Hines. He was active up until his death in 1983. Here's a live performance of Memories of You from 1965. And while he was always open to new ideas, you can hear that his style didn't change that significantly. Mm-hmm. 
Hines, such an amazing player. I think he's a pianist I may be able to identify when I hear him, since his tremolo, right-hand octaves, and that tendency to suddenly change the rhythm does seem to typify his style. I guess I'll have to listen for him in the future, and maybe play a lot more Earl Hines on future Discovering Jazz episodes. Today, talking about the history of jazz piano. Staying with swing style the very sparse style of Count Basie, the biting dissonance chords of Duke Ellington, and the left-hand tenths patterns of Teddy Wilson all move jazz piano forward. I've played lots of Duke Ellington on this program, and I plan to play a lot more Teddy Wilson. So for this episode, how about some Count Basie? He was a very agile player, but having a seven-piece band, he decided that less was more. So he kept his piano rhythmic, light, and lean. Here he is with Lester Leaps In, written by Lester Young, who's on tenor sax, Count Basie, and the Kansas City Seven from 
Now we move on to a significant shift in jazz piano, perhaps one that has never truly been duplicated, even though Art Tatum has influenced so many pianists. According to Len Lyons in his book, The Great Jazz Pianists, the cornerstone of Tatum's playing was the harmony of Earl Hines, the driving left hand of Fats Waller, and the flowing legato melody and moving left hand tenths that he heard in the playing of young Teddy Wilson. Legally blind, Tatum's virtuosity on the keyboard is unmatched. Here is Lulu's Back in Town from 1935. Art Tatum. There was a short-lived piano style, very popular from 1935 to 1939, called boogie-woogie, sometimes referred to as barrel-house piano. Even though it died out, some might say that the whole phenomenon of rock and roll was in some sense a boogie-woogie revival. Two taxicab drivers from Chicago, Mead Lux Lewis and Albert Ammons, set the stage for it in 1929, but the music didn't become a fad until John Hammond stumbled across a recording of Mead Lux Lewis playing honky-tonk train blues many years later. Here it is. Thank you. 
Let's move forward to the beginning of the era that Len Lyons refers to as modern jazz piano. One of the most influential and skilled pianists was Nat King Cole. In his trio, the bassist took over much of the function of the piano player's left hand. Ahmad Jamal tributes Nat King Cole in developing a whole new way of playing jazz piano. He stated that Nat King Cole's was the classic cohesive trio that everyone patterned themselves at that time. This was around 1949. Uh, Jamal also states that subtlety was the trademark of that instrumentation. Nat Cole's trio was a drummerless trio with piano, bass, and guitar, and the piano had to create much of the swing. Oscar Peterson described him as one of the deepest time players ever. He said that Nat King Cole influenced him by teaching him how to make time pop, unquote. I wasn't too sure what he meant by that. Listen to their version of Caravan from 1939, and maybe you'll hear what Oscar Peterson means. Nat King Cole Trio with Wesley Prince on bass, Oscar Moore guitar. Yes, you listen to that, and you can see why Len Lyons starts out by talking about Nat King Cole under the modern piano topic. I could even hear that time pop. It was probably the advent of the walking bass line by bassist Jimmy Blanton that paved the way for the pianist to focus more on their right hand, and it led to a new role for the pianist in what was termed bebop where the piano's role was to comp, comping being an abbreviated form for accompanying. And the most pivotal figure in that style was Bud Powell. He was considered the quintessential bop pianist. Powell was a troubled, talented youngster who Thelonious Monk took under his wing in the early 1940s. Bud Powell was impressed by the economy of notes in Monk's left hand, and the use of harmony. He was also influenced by Art Tatum and his harmonic modulations. New harmonies or chords added to old tunes. Bud Powell's style began to coalesce when he played with Charlie Parker in 1947. Len Lyons describes how he could make the piano wail with the nuances and inflections of a horn. His phrases would shift twist, pause, and turn back on themselves rhythmically. 
certain groups of notes seemed to melt together in a white-hot stream of sound. Unquote. Here is one of his best-known compositions, Celia. by Bud Powell from 1949 with Ray Brown on bass, Max Roach drums. So many pianists I want to play and I'm running out of time, but I must include John Lewis, especially for his contribution to third stream music, amalgamating jazz and classical. Much of that heard through his work in the modern jazz quartet. His playing compared to most of the bebop players, was ordered, sedate, and restrained, and his interplay with Milt Jackson's vibes were like fugues from 1956. Here is their beautiful rendition of Angel Eyes. Thank you. 
Today on Discovering Jazz, I'm doing a brief historical overview of jazz pianists. That was the piano of John Lewis with the Modern Jazz Quartet, with Mill Jackson on vibes, Percy Heath bass, and Connie K drums, Angel Eyes. I have time for only two more, so I'll have to let go of playing Errol Garner, Lenny Tristano, Dave Brubeck, Ahmed Jamal, Oscar Peterson, Marion McPartland, Mary Lou Williams, Wynton Kelly, Hank Jones, Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, McCoy Tyner, Keith Jarrett, Cecil Taylor, and so many others. But you'll hear them on future programs. As I want to keep exploring the piano. The pian- pianist who most jazz pianists I talk to, and about whom teachers in jazz piano books seem to want to get every modern jazz pianist to play like, is Bill Evans. He is best known for recomposing so many standard tunes, adding brand new harmonies or chords in a very creative yet tasteful manner. Here's a great example. It's from a 1974 album called Intuition with bassist Eddie Gomez. His lovely rendition of Bronislaw Capers' High Lily, High Low.
Bill Evans with Eddie Gomez. I want to finish today's Discovering Jazz episode on the history of jazz piano by talking about an underrated Canadian pianist, Paul Blay, an explorer of the free jazz and modal style of playing, which was influenced by Ornette Coleman. He learned to let go of preset chord changes, applying Coleman's free approach to the keyboard. Here is a Carla Blay composition, Ictus, with John Gilmore on tenor sax, Paul Motion, drums, and Gary Peacock bass from the Turning Point album, recorded in 1964 but not released until 1975. This is Larry Sadman saying bye for now. Tune in next week. I have one more program on jazz piano.